Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I'm joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center, and Damon Linker of The Week. We are delighted to welcome as our special guest this week, Maya McGinnis, president of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. And we want to talk about being responsible with our budgeting because right now we are on the verge of uh, the Congress is on the verge of considering a $1.9 trillion um, stimulus bill. So first things first, Maya, I want to start with you because um, does the very term stimulus seem misplaced? I mean, one of the points that critics have made is that we don't need to stimulate the economy. The economy will bounce back as soon as the COVID crisis is over. People aren't even spending money from the last stimulus. Many, you know, wealthier people aren't because they need to wait for the virus to be conquered before they can resume economic activity. Yeah. uh, First, great to be with all of you. Um, I really love listening to the show and it's always nice to join you all. Um, Absolutely. This isn't stimulus because in the traditional sense, because this is in no way an economic downturn in the traditional sense. Basically, we had to shut down the economy in order to fight the pandemic. And I think really the way to think about all of this is it's a bridge loan to get to the other side. Well, not a loan, a grant, but It's a bridge to get to the other side of back when we can open up the economy. And luckily, all signs are that when we do that, the recovery in most sectors is going to be quite strong. There's actually going to be a lot of pent up demand. And so I think it's getting from here to there. That is the issue right now. And then we'll see whether there has to be stimulus or recovery measures that fill in gaps in industries and areas that have been disrupted more permanently. Um, But right now, this is really providing, first and foremost, money to continue to fight the pandemic in whatever way might be necessary and relief for those who need it. But as we should talk about more, there's a lot more in terms of targeting to make sure those dollars are actually going to where it should to create those, to achieve those objectives that could and should be done. So let me ask you something. Um, have you, I mean, you have a number of substantive critiques of this uh, proposed spending. You have it, it's on your website and so forth. Um, are you getting a receptive audience from any Democrats on the Hill or any, or in the Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, it is certainly, this is, there were many COVID bills before and the feeling, including our own at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget was let's just get the money into the economy. Everybody knows it's not going to be spent perfectly or anywhere close, but this is a real emergency. We are slamming the brakes on the economy. Let's make sure that we can fill in those holes and get the money out there. And there was broad-based bipartisan support, and that was terrific. Mm -hmm. This moment is different in that the economy is starting to look strong, And the uh, course of the pandemic is starting to look optimistic, you know, knock on wood, fingers crossed, because who knows. But 
That means given the fact that we put so much money in the economy already, and there's still quite a bit of money that hasn't even gone out and had the positive effects that it likely will. You mean from the previous COVID from bills? The previous, that's right. There's still hundreds of billions of dollars that hasn't worked its way through the economy yet. And so, yes, you are absolutely starting to hear um, concerns from people about both the size of the bill and the need for better targeting. The unfortunate thing is that now it's breaking into partisan camps. And this, we all know this is not the way that Washington can get real policy done, where it's Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other side. Um, and it's confusing because that happens to coincide with the change of a new president, where I think Democrats um, rightly would like to work with the administration um, and get something strong out there. And Republicans are feeling less pressure to do so than they did when it was a Republican president. So that bipartisan the real chance of bipartisanship seems much more difficult than it did before. That would be by far the best way to do it. And yes, there are certainly Democrats who I think rightly are saying, I want this bill. And they say this, you know, it's better to go too big than too small. And I'm going to support this bill. But I do think it should be targeted in a much better way. You are hearing that more and more as people are digging into the bill and seeing how many of the resources could be spent in more uh, targeted ways. Um. Linda, do you think um, do you think it's that they are worried about the analogy from two thousand nine, where they felt like they didn't go far enough, and that that caused the Obama administration problems? And of course, the situations are radically different now. But they're worried about you know, as as Maya said, they're worried better to go too big than too small. They feel like they went too small then. Um, do you think it's that or do, or or do you think it's as some people suggest that you know this is a democratic wish list it's got all kinds of spending for states and localities that you know they wouldn't necessarily be able to get under other circumstances along with a lot of other stuff in this bill um, that is a kind of a democratic wish list uh, what do you think well I think uh, the latter um, I wish I didn't have to think that but I do I think you know it is a typical democratic response was let's just throw a lot of money at a bunch of problems and hope that some of it does some good and it's likely that some of it will but it's also likely I think that there will be uh, some waste uh, and abuse and we'll be spending money that you know eventually we have to pay for I mean that's the problem. On the other hand, I think that there has not been uh, much of an interest on the part of Republicans to say, well, let's try and figure out the way they they did the last time at the end of the uh, Trump administration with the last uh, relief bill where you got a group of Democrats and Republicans to get together and to propose a smaller package, but one that, that ultimately passed, you're not seeing that kind of uh, real bipartisanship. And, and a lot of that has to do with uh, Republicans feeling like they have no power and the only way they're going to get power is to be able to win control of, of one of the two um, chambers of, of Congress, and that simply playing along with the Democrats is not going to get them there and, in fact, could end up having backlash for some. So I think there's just not a whole lot of incentive uh, to make this bipartisan, and the Democrats are, I think, coming up with a wish list of everything they'd like to see, including, of course, the federal minimum wage, which... Um, 
frankly, I'm not opposed to the idea of coming up with a new federal minimum wage. Maybe it won't be 15 hours initially. It will take time to get there. Um, it probably it hasn't been updated in a very long time. But you don't necessarily have to have it in this bill. And the same for um, everything, you know, uh, having to do with pensions and pension contributions and other things that are in this bill. So um, I. I, I you know, I, I would hope that at some point it's going to get serious and Democrats are not going to just ram this through with only Democratic votes. I think that would be a big mistake uh, for Democrats and would be a huge mistake for the Biden administration. Um, Bill, leaving aside the merits of the legislation for just a second, do you think it was a political error for Biden, uh, for the Biden administration to um, not seek to negotiate with the Republican senators who approached them with an alternative suggestion, including Romney and Collins? Uh, I'm not sure how big a mistake it was to do it uh, this way, this time. It would be a huge mistake to do it again. Uh, My conversations with a lot of Democrats have have persuaded me that, A, they saw this as uh, an extension of an emergency uh, and that they still needed to respond to facts on the ground with that emergency mindset. And secondly, they did not want to hamstring the administration in its first major legislative initiative. The administration, I think, felt that time was of the essence with this first bill uh, and that they they had to pay the price of a single party bill in order to get it through in the the time allotted. Whether they were right or wrong in that judgment, uh, I don't know, and I don't think anybody knows. Uh, So will this be a political blow to the administration? No, I I don't think so. Does it mean that Republicans will write off the administration and abandon all further cooperation with it? I don't think that either. But I do believe that if they use reconciliation to jam through the Build Back Better bill, the infrastructure bill in the summer or the fall, uh, that that would be for Republicans proof positive that the administration was not serious about governing in a two-party fashion. Um, Maya, yeah. First of all, you have a response. And then when you're finished, I'd love for you to comment on the inflation risk, if any. Yeah. So I wanted to sort of agree on what Linda was saying, that this this is a bill that, in addition to having a lot of good ideas that could be targeted better, is also a... Um, receptacle for a lot of Democratic wish lists uh, of policies that they were thinking about and wanted before COVID even hit. And that does include minimum wage, which it's complicated to put in when you're still in a recession, could be very counterproductive to um, the pension bailout, which is egregious, frankly, and doesn't belong there at all, to some policies that one might be sympathetic to. I think uh, looking at well, certainly solving the chi- the objective of child poverty in this country is one of the very top priorities there is. And the child tax credit may well be the right way to do that. So it might belong in the tax policy or the the tax or tax code, but it certainly doesn't belong in the COVID emergency bill. So you should remove those things. But I want to just add another complicating factor, which does exist, which is there are a lot of Democrats who say, yeah, we're putting in our wish list into this bill and passing on reconciliation. 
just like the Republicans passed a $2 trillion tax cut that wasn't paid for. In fact, when the economy was strong and we should have been bringing our debt down, there was really no justification for borrowing then. And while I think that leads us to a very bad outcome of wasting literally a trillion dollars in resources and adding to the debt at a time when it's already so high, I'm very sympathetic to that complaint in that when the tax cuts were being passed, our organization kept saying, oh, no, not only is this bad policy to not pay for these, it's going to make it so much more difficult to do good policy going forward. And we are in that moment. So I just wanted to add that element that that's part of the dynamic that's going on where Democrats are saying, well, they got ours. Now we want ours. We want ours. And I just think if we keep trying to make policy in that approach, we are going to have really bad detrimental policies. To your point about inflation, there's many reasons to be concerned about short-term inflation, putting so much money in the economy when there's probably going to be a bigger demand than supply. I do think it's more of a short-term worry. I'm no expert on inflation. Nobody really knows. But I think what I'm more worried about is these asset bubbles that we're really seeing popping up throughout the economy low interest rates, this much money. There are a lot of things that are going to keep driving up assets, which bubbles are bad for stability and Mm. they also contribute to income inequality. Yeah. And I mean, you know, what could possibly go wrong with like a housing bubble? I mean, you know. (laughs) Um, Okay. Interesting. So Damon, um, so one of the things that I found interesting about this whole debate is that, um, is that Mitt Romney ran a piece in the Wall Street Journal, on the Wall Street Journal editorial page, where he listed his uh, critique um, critiques of the, of the Biden bill and explained that, that what he would do differently. And, you know, it had almost a before times quality to it. I thought, yeah, you know, back in the before times, before we went through Trump and, and what Maya was just saying about how, how badly the Republicans just blew through any concept of, uh, of fiscal responsibility, you know, that would have been totally normal for, you know, a Republican, leading Republican to publish his complaints in the Wall Street Journal, be taken seriously and have a big audience and, but now it feels almost like, who does Romney think the audience for this is exactly? I mean, there aren't any people who are, who are um, well, are there? I don't know. Maybe I'm being too harsh. Are there fair-minded people out there who, who really want to evaluate policy on the merits and are not just going to do this in a red jersey, blue jersey way? Well, I I don't know. I mean, other you mean other than on this podcast, I guess. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the um, <laughs> there probably are a few, but I and I would say that uh, that Romney is is really impressing me in the sense that he is um, he is getting some traction with all of these proposals that are coming out. I mean, I'm not talking about the op ed in particular. I mean, uh, above all the the uh, the child benefit proposal that we talked about on here a couple of weeks ago, uh, which is not only in and of itself a a, a remarkable move for a Republican to propose, but also is an interesting kind of negotiation with the Biden administration over its own proposals. It kind of ups the the ante with, uh, with the Democrats in a way that could set up very productive negotiations down the line, I think. So that's productive. And then this last week, uh, Romney and Tom Cotton came out with a, a, a very interesting, smaller uh, minimum wage hike proposal uh, that has it keyed to 
using E-Verify to uh, make it much more difficult for businesses to hire undocumented immigrants. Now, there are going to be a lot of Democrats who aren't going to want to go for that at all. And they're, of course, going to blanch at the much lower um uh, a floor on the minimum wage proposal there. But again, it, it shows that there is some, I think, potentially very fruitful uh, work going on in trying to figure out how to maybe address problems. <laughs> how unusual <laughs> is that? So, I mean, in that respect, um, it isn't just that Romney op-ed. It's these other... Um, these other initiatives that Romney is floating out there, that they are getting some traction, that Democrats, in response to some of what Romney has proposed, uh, are, aren't immediately saying, oh, of course, you idiot Republicans and your your uh, hatred of all human beings except the super rich would propose such a thing and then laughing it out of town. They're actually saying, well, you know, this is really interesting. Uh, we, we don't really agree with all of this, we, especially on the child benefit proposal, the way he proposes to pay for it, Democrats aren't thrilled with. But there's a conversation going on that does remind us of the before times, but it's actually happening. And that that is something that gives me uh, a, a bit of hope here. Um, now, what doesn't give me much hope is Josh Hawley's proposal, which uh, I don't know if we want to get into the, the nitty gritty of that. But he uh, also maybe. had a proposal this week, which, hey, although I don't favor really what he's proposing there on uh, an alternative to a, a minimum wage hike. But I will say that it is another idea being floated out there from conservative, a conservative Republican. And just having it out there, you know, it, it's like, uh, you know, it's 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 another another position that inevitably has implications on everybody else's positions because there is another uh, an alternative out there for discussion and debate. So these are these are, I think, modestly positive signs. Okay, Maya, I'm going to give you the last word, and I know you're going to be leaving us after this segment, but I want to just uh, give you the chance to say, like, what are some of your top objectives with reforming this bill and making it uh, a more, you know, a, a better bill if the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget could get a, a, a short wish list, what would be on it? Oh, good. I love, I love pretending that the things that we wanted could actually happen. <laughs> but I mean, first, they shouldn't, this should not be a train for other unrelated policies, ones that I might support or not. Let's remove the unrelated policies because it undermines the integrity of emergency bills, which this clearly is if done right. Second, we should right size the state and local um, spending because we're giving much more money than the states even need. Many states are doing well. Some of them are already planning tax cuts. Um, when it comes to targeting, we should not be giving money to any state company or family that's doing better through the COVID year than they were before. Right? Mm -hmm. Let's target the money to those who actually got harmed. There are plenty of them and they really need that help. So we should improve the state and local spending. We should Definitely switch the rebates, which are quite honestly, they should be dropped completely. Um, they're a political promise and, and unemployment is a much better way to do this money. And when it comes to unemployment, assuming the economy gets stronger, the $400 that the Biden administration would like to put in, the bonus weekly, um, should start lower than that. And it should be tapered down as the unemployment money 
as the unemployment situation starts to improve so that it doesn't create a disincentive to go back to work. And finally, it's premature to talk about dealing with the national debt. Um, not talk about it. It's premature to do anything, but we should start to talk about it because the real risk is that on the future reconciliation bills, there's trillions more in borrowing. Nobody wants to pay for anything. Every excuse is pulled out of thin air. And we need to agree that once the economy is strong enough, we will pivot back to both paying for new initiatives and figuring out how to get the debt back on a sustainable path. It's not the most urgent problem now, but I have to stress, it underlies our ability to deal with every big problem on the horizon, whether it's geopolitical competition, whether it's technological changes, the future of work, and our indebtedness is really going to become a massive threat connected to all the other issues we are dealing with in what I hope will soon be the post-COVID world. So we can't forget that piece as well. Excellent. Thank you so much for that and for joining us. And uh, we look forward to having you back very soon. Thanks so much. So nice to be with all of you. Take care. Okay. Bye, Maya. All right. Um, so, and and let me just add a, a quick footnote to what Maya said uh, about, you know, money that is not being spent on other things. One other area that really, I mean, there's actually some of this in the bill itself, but um, we're going to need to think about much more uh, spending in the future on preventing other uh, or preparing for, not preventing, but preparing for other potential catastrophes and emergencies. Uh, we just had the last week, we talked about what happened in Texas. And, you know, there, there are just a lot of things that we could be spending more money on mitigation. Uh, so that's also something to think about. All right, let us now turn to um, the proposal that was um, <clears throat> made by Nancy Pelosi for a January 6th commission. Um, Bill Galston, uh, first of all, she says it should contain seven Democrats and four Republicans. Uh, is that a recipe for success? Uh, it depends on how you define success. Uh, if you define success as a report that only one party will take seriously and only 52% of the country will take seriously, then yes, it's a perfect formula. Uh, but as many people have pointed out, a, a preferable model for success broadly conceived uh, would be a fully bipartisan commission with an equal representation of both political parties and chairs and co-chairs drawn from both political parties in equal numbers and uh, a pledge that... Uh, Tom Kane and, uh, come on, Bill. Uh, Lee Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you. 75-year-old memory lock. <laughs> Happens Yoked. to me all the time. <laughs> Saved by a younger woman, as always. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the, uh, you know, to, to have only joint media appearances. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that, Unfortunately, Speaker Pelosi has gotten the conversation off on the wrong foot, and I'm not sure why she did or and how she would justify it. So, Linda, uh, so Speaker Pelosi probably set the wrong tone, but you know, I can also imagine, can't you, that um, the current Republican leadership might want to appoint people like. Uh, 
Jim Jordan or or Matt Gates to such a commission and make a complete clown show out of it? Absolutely. I mean, I don't see uh, them appointing Liz Cheney, for example, uh, to such a It would a help if they only chose retired. I was just going to say, I think that's part of the problem. The idea that you're going to have members of Congress doing this, I think it's a bad idea. I think, yeah. I think it ought to be people who are elder statesmen, if you were, uh, Will. Um, it was it would be people who might have had uh, elective or even appointed office, uh, might even be former judges. Um, and I think the whole idea of having it bipartisan pretty much requires that you have something like an, an even split, a 50-50 split. And I love Bill's idea. And of course, it is more um, applicable to, uh, from the 9-11 Commission, that you have the co-chairs and the members uh, of such a commission speak with one voice, uh, never to speak individually. The, what we don't want to see, and I think what Pelosi's recommendation would end up with, is a commission report that finds certain facts and a minority report uh, that essentially tries to bypass those facts mm -hmm. uh, and in which there is absolutely no agreement on um, how to prevent it from happening in the future. And I think that would be a disaster. I think it would make matters worse. Uh, and that is exactly what we do not want to do. And of course, it's easier when you have uh, a foreign attack, if you have a bunch of uh, foreign extremists uh, wreak havoc and, and kill Americans. It's, it's easier to get Americans to pull together and to be united as one people and not to be playing partisan roles than if you have some uh, an event which was in fact driven by the car kind of partisan rancor uh, that has existed now for, it, it precedes uh, Donald Trump. I think Donald Trump was elected in part because it preceded him, but certainly uh, has been there at least for the last uh, uh, decade. And so I, you know, it, what they're proposing to do is not going to help. Um, Damon, you know, Linda says that it's easier to pull together when you're attacked by a foreign entity, which is of course true, but I, but I would just footnote that by saying the, the degree of rancor and bitterness between us, uh, in this country has gotten to the point now where I kind of wonder if even a, an attack by, uh, an outside entity would bring us together. I mean, there would be opportunities for both sides to say, ah, but you caused this because you let down your guard or whatever. I mean, and by the way, there was a little bit of that after 9-11. I mean, I remember um, one very, very tense um, uh, bit of congressional testimony by um, Condoleezza Rice when the Democrats raked her over the coals because there had been a PDB, a President's Daily Brief, that that had supposedly, you know, warned of an imminent attack and it wasn't taken seriously enough by the Bush people, and they were blaming, uh, you know, they had Condi there to, um, you know, to be in the hot seat. But it, but so there was some of that. But um, but in general, the uh, I think most would agree that the 9/11 Commission that was before Congress, the 9/11 Commission, you know, with its elder statesmen and it's sort of a little bit of a remove from the hurly-burly of politics really did, uh, first of all, um, it, it inspired confidence. Um, its, its recommendations were almost entirely adopted, um, and it helped the country to process what had happened. 
Um, so I'm going to put you on the spot, Damon, and ask you if you can think of people, actual names of people who could be on such a commission and, and serve a similar role now in light of everything that's happened in the interim. Oh, dear. Uh, well, <laughs> um, the answer is no, I can't really. Uh, and that's because of my broader, broader uh, sort of, I don't know, I don't want to say cynicism, although sometimes you could say that about me. Um, but I, I uh, you know, some of what Linda said, uh, you know, goes along the same lines with this, that I am, um, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that, uh, especially with this kind of a domestic thing. I mean, what we saw on, on this, the 6th of January was not a civil war, but it was in the direction of a civil war in the sense that you had the head of one party inciting an insurrection against Congress for his own advantage and um, egging it on, and they were clearly partisans of a kind on the side of one party against the other party. And that means that the, the I, will, I will, again, be cynical enough to describe it as a pretense of a kind of objectivity that you would want from any such committee. Uh, an investigation, I think is it's sort of unrealistic to expect it could be attainable to the extent that those fissures in our society remain real. And I think they do. Um, and so in that respect, even if you tried to do the kind of right down the line, bipartisan way in which Bill described it, where you have equal numbers of people from both parties on, on the committee and uh, overseeing it and agreements about talking to the media. I mean, could you imagine Republicans in this moment agreeing that they would not go on Fox to talk about and spin their side of what this committee was doing? I, I think that's uh, inconceivable. Um, and that's not good for the country, but it is an expression of, I think, unfortunately, where we are. And then Pelosi's suggestion uh, that it be seven to four. I mean, that that is that really is kind of a joke. Like I that's um, that's not even taking uh, my own despair in thinking that what Bill proposed, which was absolute fairness and thinking even that wouldn't work, let alone stacking the deck like that. Um, I mean, if you're going to do that, why even have four Republicans? How about why not just make it a Democratic panel that would come up with findings showing how the Republicans were behind this entirely, which is true. <laughs> um, I mean, what, I guess what you put, uh, you could put Ben Sass and Mitt Romney on there, but of course then the people in the Republican party who, who are on the Trump side of this divide in the party would have even more of a reason to dismiss it. So it just, we sort of go round and round and thinking this through. And um, I mean, one way of describing where we are as a society and its danger is that the space in our public life for uh, institutions and people who speak in the name of the country as a whole, its laws, its norms that abide across partisan divides and over time as as power shifts back and forth between the parties is shrinking and shrinking and getting smaller and smaller 
And that means there are very few people around who can be trusted by both sides. So there, that's a long answer to your question yeah. of who, who I would pick. And my answer yeah. is, oh, how hell have I know? I guess yeah. uh, I pick Tom Hanks playing a role as uh, a, a bipartisan politician from 40 years ago. That's who I put on that commission. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the, there are a number of questions that Americans want answers to, like, you know, what, how did Officer Sicknick die? That's one. You know, what, what caused his death? Um, uh, you know, the, the possible involvement of um, some actual members of Congress in, uh, in this, in this violence and so forth. Um, there are a lot of questions. It looks like a commission is not going to be the way to get answers to those things. Um, there may be other way, you know, the justice department is going to be investigating our new attorney general, Merrick Garland said that he does plan to make this a priority investigating. So there is, Another <clears throat> avenue of investigation. There will be lawsuits, doubtless. Those may reveal some answers. But but what the country most needs is what we cannot get, and that is, we need to um, convince the seventy five percent or whatever it is of the Republican Party that the election was free and fair, and that this was the worst. Um, con job, uh, uh, propaganda effort, lot, big lie, uh, probably in, uh, in, in maybe in all of American history and certainly in recent American history. And, uh, that I, it's hard to see how that can possibly happen. Um, all right. Uh, Bill, you had a very interesting column this week that, uh, noted that, uh, president Biden spoke this past week at the Munich Security Conference and proclaimed that America is back. Um, and you say, maybe, but <laughs> you want to <laughs> fill in the blank? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I have to start with a grandfather's story. Uh, my oldest grandson, who's now eight, is obsessed with maps and geography. He knows the capitals of every country in the world, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard to stump him with a geography question. Uh, and when my, when my piece came out uh, and there was a sort of bing on his father, my, my, my son's uh, cell phone, uh, the following headline popped up. Biden is back, but Europe has moved. And apparently he went to his father gravely concerned and said, <laughs> Abba, where did Europe go? <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and can I, we get I, it back? <laughs> I shared that with my editor. Some That's funny. <laughs> who thought that my eight-year-old grandson should have recognized a metaphor when he saw it. <laughs> tough crowd. <laughs> a very, very tough crowd. In, in any event, uh, my column was very simple. Uh, you know, Biden gave a sort of a meat, meat and potatoes, America's back, let's pick up where we left off speech. Uh, he got, I would say, a luke, polite but lukewarm 
response from other other leaders gathered at the Munich Security Con- Conference. Uh, French President Macron made an impassioned plea for Europe's you know, strategic autonomy. Uh, Chancellor Merkel made it very clear that she wasn't go- going to toe the American line on economic issues of major importance to Germany, like the Nord Stream 2 pipeline or like the EU's recent uh, trade treaty with China. Uh, That was not particularly surprising. Uh, What was more surprising was a survey put out within the past few weeks by the European Council on Foreign Relations, uh, which found astonishing movement by rank and file Europeans in the direction of a a Europe uh, that would be more nearly neutral uh, between the United States and whatever enemy we chose to designate next, including China. Uh, it became clear, at least to me, on the basis of that survey, that the damage that the Trump administration did to our global leadership was more than superficial. And that's the case because Europeans' perception of the guardrails that used to hem in American political oscillation, has now broadened. They do not believe that simply because Joe Biden uh, defeated Donald Trump, that the threat of right-wing populism taking power in the United States, again, has gone away. Not at all. Uh, They think it's a real and present possibility. Uh, and they don't think they can rely on the United States the way they used to be able to, to be the stabilizing force in times of political turmoil. Uh, this is, and it's not clear to me whether this perception of a less reliable American public is going to be corrected quickly. Maybe not at all. So this is a permanent price that we've paid. I could go into greater detail, but uh, that's the gist of it. Linda, um, can you blame them? Uh, you know, Europeans look at us, and and this is not just this is not about Trump per se. It's about the fact that the American people elected him, and so the Europeans are saying to themselves, "This country is not one that we think we can be." that we can rely on. The next election might bring a similar character into power. Linda, you're muted. Sorry about that. Um, no. I, um, that's right. I think they are more worried about the American people um, than they have been in the past. But I would also suggest that this didn't again, just start five years ago uh, with the uh, campaign and election of Donald Trump. Um, The United States um, has uh, been an unreliable partner. um, And I think going back even to the, um, you know, era of Vietnam and and other times when, um, you know, we we have backed out of uh, areas where we were very committed, uh, often after pulling others in with us uh, into conflicts. And certainly we saw that during the Obama years uh, with respect to Afghanistan and Iraq. And so I, you know, I think that it, it isn't so much a partisan issue as it is that America has seemed in recent years um, 
as being less sure of itself and its, uh, its role in the world and its standing in the world. And our leaders have exemplified that. And so if we're not sure of ourselves, why should others have faith in us? So uh, I think this is not just, um, you know, a product of, of the Trump years. Uh, I think this uh, goes to a bigger question about America's role in the world. And certainly, as Bill suggested in his column, um, the European sense that China is the growing dominant force in the world um, is, you know, experienced in a lot of areas. Certainly, uh, the economy of China has been very vibrant. Um, China has not in the past proved itself to be, um, you know, interested in some kind of hegemony, uh, in the world, but they are now much more interested in having influence in parts of the world where they're ha- where they haven't before. And so all of this really means that, uh, you're seeing America's role in the world as being challenged. Damon, uh, there was a piece in the Times by a guy named Stephen Wertheim, um, who uh, who writes that the U.S. should not be back, should not want to be back, should not play a large role in world affairs, um, except on two issues, climate change and fighting global pandemics. Um I don't think you go quite that far, but what's your reaction to all of this? Well, um, I'm a realist in foreign policy, which means that uh, my take on it uh, might in some ways overlap with like Stephen Wertheim's position. He's a very smart guy and a, an accomplished historian of American foreign affairs. So I I, I like him and his work, uh, but we don't really see eye to eye on things like what you just described. I mean, the United States is uh, is the most powerful nation on the planet in all kinds of ways still. And we need to think about our role in the world from that baseline. You don't just say, from now on, we'll act totally different as if we're not the most powerful nation on the planet. And that would imply, you know, backing away from security commitments all over the world if all we're going to care about is climate change and uh, uh, kind of public health initiatives. So that, that I don't think makes much sense. Um, that would create vacuums and there would be there would be provocations of bad behavior on the part of countries all over the world if we did that. So obviously that can't be the way forward in my view. At the same time, I think what what Bill talked about in his column and, and uh, Linda picked up on about Europe is absolutely correct. And I would my, what I would add as an emphasis which uh, neither of them really uh, uh, spent much time talking about is Iraq and the and uh, the Bush administration and the fact that from Europe's point of view the fact that the Bush administration went to war in Iraq over the objections of pretty much every country on the continent except for Spain. Um, well, and uh, Britain, if you count them as your well, I said continent, so I wasn't, yeah, okay. I, I, I wasn't counting uh, Great Britain. But okay. but but if we're talking about Europe and especially now post Brexit, that means the continent of Europe. Uh, they did not think that was a good idea. They feel very vindicated and having thought so. And so that means that when Biden goes over there and says, we're America's back, they say, you know what? I think I heard that before 12 years ago. 
when Barack Obama became president and his message was America's back and they believed him so much so that they kind of uh, behaved a little silly and gave him a Nobel Peace Prize and all, all this kinds of stuff to kind of make it seem as if they're like anticipating the greatness that would come from this. And what did Obama do? He, you know, among other things, he uh, joins the Paris Climate Accord. He works for years to get a nuclear arms deal with Iran. And then the country elects Trump, who makes Bush, from Europe's point of view, look like, you know, uh, a Metternich, like a great, a great, uh, you know, uh, statesman who who forged some kind of world peace. So now Trump is this monster who seems to be tearing up everything he tears up, the Iran deal, he tears up or pulls the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord and kind of goes you know, and bumper cars around crashing into everything in the world for four years. And now Biden's there saying America's back. And how, of course, Europe is going to say, yeah, well, how about let's see for a while? <laughs> because Obama mm. was president for eight years. So even if Biden and or uh, you know, Kamala Harris or whoever it ends up being, is president for eight years. That doesn't mean that eight years from now, we're not going to turn around and elect like whatever Trump part two or whoever that ends up being, who goes in a radically different direction. That is not, that isn't a statement about America being weak. It's a statement about us being incredibly uh, unreliable. And reliability really matters for things like a, a, a liberal international order, which is what Europe is talking about when it speaks about whether or not it can really treat America as the leader of that. Yeah, uh, I, I, uh, I don't have that much to add. I agree with all that, uh, except to say that some of those surveys um, from Europe and and even the comments of some of the leaders strike me as a little cold. I mean, um, this idea that well, the U.S. is unreliable, which I completely agree we have been, um, means that we're going to be neutral as between the U.S. and China, say, or as between the U.S. and any potential conflict with Russia. Well, hold on a second. I mean, I thought Europe was supposed to be upholding certain liberal international ideas as well. And certainly as between the United States and those two countries, it doesn't seem to me to be that tough a choice to say, well, you know, the U.S. aligns far more with our values. Uh, and you don't hear them saying that, which um, which is annoying. Uh, all right. We now come to oh Linda yes did you want to did you want to add yeah, something yeah I I just was going to say that I, that I think part of the problem is the NATO alliance um, which I think Trump did a great deal uh, to damage and mostly by the way he talked not so much by what he did um, that as the sort of driving force that has united uh, not just Europe but obviously uh, United States Canada uh, and uh, the UK, uh, that I think too has has been one of the the big problem areas. So, you know what what becomes of NATO going forward? I think is going to matter a great deal in in terms of what role uh, the United States uh, states plays in the world. Okay, um, since you've reminded me of it, I, I'm just going to get on my hobby horse one more time on one subject, which is this was a bipartisan failure um, that you know, was uh, both Hillary Clinton and uh, 
Trump in 2016 announced that they were opposed to the TPP, which was the obvious way for the United States to both be tough on China and improve our international standing and our world leadership and be good for the world's poor in terms of creating more opportunities for everyone as well as the wealthier countries. I mean, it was a, it was, it wasn't perfect, but it was a no brainer. That was the way to go. Both of our political parties said, nope, we're not into that anymore. And so now we've actually handed China a great gift in terms of trade and influence around the world and uh, harmed our own international standing. All right. Climbing down off my soapbox, let us now turn to our final topic, our highlight or lowlight that we would like to emphasize. So, Linda, I'll start with you. Okay. Well, uh, I have some very great news, um, and that is the proclamation that was signed by President Biden uh, on February 24th, a uh, a proclamation revoking many of the uh, changes that President Trump had put into effect that essentially ground to a halt legal immigration to the United States. He, of course, used the pandemic and uh, the struggling economy, uh, he meaning President Trump, uh, to halt uh, immigrants of all sorts, including anything but the closest family members of those who are already here, uh, halting uh, any people who are in the uh, so-called lottery system, uh, halting uh, the immigration of certain kinds of uh, temporary workers who are on uh, various uh, work visas, and uh, essentially what uh, President Biden has now done is to revoke all of those uh, uh, prohibitions. And I think this really does point to the fact that immigration is going to be uh, a focus uh, of this president. Uh, I think this was absolutely a very easy thing for him to do. Uh, it doesn't get him involved in some of the more trickier questions of you know what to do about the 11 million people who are here illegally. But this allows the immigration system to function as it has for most of the last 50 years with bringing in people who have contributed to our economy, um, who become good Americans. And if we really want to recover economically, uh, we need these people. So that was my good news for the week. Okay. Damon. Well, I, uh, I spend probably an inordinate amount of time complaining about the New York Times in my life in general and uh, <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> but, but I did want to flag uh, an example of really top-notch, first-rate journalism uh, from the Times showing that uh, the place contains multitudes and some of those multitudes are still the best you get. Um, Michael Powell uh, has done really great work there uh, doing journalism to look into examples of kind of progressive overreach uh, around the country. And just last night, uh, they published at the Times uh, a long uh, investigative uh, piece of uh reporting from Powell titled Inside a Battle Over Race, Class, and Power at Smith College. And it is just a real tour de force that uh, does a great job of looking at this story that 
received some attention a couple of years ago of, of, of a black student at Smith who was in a dorm she wasn't supposed to be in over the summer, went into an area where she wasn't supposed to be in, and uh, security was called. There were no weapons brandished or anything. It was all, at the moment, seemingly pretty polite. But this student ended up making a series of accusations about being a target of racism, and it resulted in uh, the the security officer who showed up, plus a woman in the uh, the dining hall who originally said something about it, to be accused of being racist, and the president of the college not doing anything to defend them, the ACLU getting involved with charges, and Powell just very meticulously and with the great care that great journalists uh, display really just digs into the story and unravels it piece by piece so that by the end you just see that really nobody did anything wrong here in, from the very beginning and people have been punished and their lives have been uh, you know overturned due, due to a kind of hysteria that uh, is uh, distressingly common these days. So it's a great story about an important subject and the fact that it's published in the Times is very, very good. Could not agree more. Would love to, um, you know, underline that. Also recommend it. Um, I have a tiny tickle in the back of my brain saying, I wonder if Powell's going to face blowback from some of his younger colleagues at the New York Times, considering the atmosphere there lately. So I'm a little concerned, but um, I, I would say I don't have any deep uh, uh, information from behind the scenes, but the little that I do, the people that I know there, um, as I as I joked at the beginning of what I was saying about the multitudes at the Times, um, it is a huge place and the the kind of woke younger people who are stirring up a lot of the trouble there are still just a portion of the staff. There are a lot of powerful people there who are not happy about how things have been unfolding. And I think Powell has some protection. So I hope so, because there's another thing that that uh, dawned this week at the Times where they announced that they're going to be taking all kinds of efforts to make people more comfortable who might not be comfortable at the Times. And it was sounding very much like they were trying to make the woke people more comfortable rather than good journalists. But we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Yes. Yeah. Um, OK, Bill. Well, this is funny because my item, too praises the times. Uh, we discussed earlier in, in this show uh, uh, Mitt Romney's proposal uh, to help children, a counter-proposal counter to the Biden proposal. To my absolute astonishment, uh, the times ran a long editorial uh, saying, in effect, Democrats, you have something to learn from Romney's proposal. Take it seriously. Uh, considering the editorial line that the Times has taken about just about everything in recent years, uh, I could hardly believe it. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure whether to be encouraged by it or not, but it is a fact that it appeared. And uh, I think that itself deserves to be noticed. Oh, I'm in. I did not even. I didn't know about that. I, I missed that one. So, I, I, at least on the basis of your report, I, I'm encouraged. So that's good. That's good. 
All right. Um, well, I would like, I, there were so many things I could have chosen this week. It was a very, very full uh, list, um, but uh, including the fact that, that if you missed it, you got to go watch the uh, Perseverance Land on Mars, some, some of the most amazing footage. <laughs> stunning. Ever. Absolutely ever. stunning. Right? Yes. I thought um, they were simulations when I saw I them. know. It was amazing. It was so clear and uh, just, just, remarkable and could, what an accomplishment. Could I just interrupt here? Cause it's, it's, yeah. I think it's so funny. Um, my husband and I were watching it live and we texted our sons and said, get the grandkids uh, to turn on the TV now. And we were met with uh, a guffaw uh, by our grown children who said, people don't care about watching things live today. So just, you know, having watched the moon landing when my oldest son was a babe in arms, uh, Mm. that broke my heart. Oh, well, I hope that they really appreciate it though when they watch it on, you know, on video, whatever. Okay. Uh, But that's not my item. My item is Jonathan Rauch writing in uh, the Atlantic, uh, really good piece called the five Trump amendments to the constitution, obviously informal amendments, but, uh, but he sort of analyzes what the Trump presidency meant for some of the norms and he goes through them and they're, I think really they're, they're spot on, you know, that, uh, Impeachment is now pretty much a dead letter if you can keep your party in line, that uh, congressional oversight is notional, that, uh, well, there, there are five of them. I won't, uh, I won't go through all of them just to point out that uh, it's available on the Atlantic and uh, highly recommended. Uh, it, it was it was excellent, and and that piece began as a uh, a series of tweets from uh, Jonathan a couple of weeks ago, and uh, when when he tweeted them out, I retweeted them and said excellent thread. So I'm glad he expanded it <laughs> oh, into oh, an article oh, that might have a little bit longer life and uh, reach well, a that's bigger great. audience. And- and in further Jonathan Rauch news, he has a book coming out. And uh, so we can expect uh, a return visit from him in the not too distant future. Excellent. Um, and with that, we thank you all for listening. Please rate and review us. Send your comments as usual to me uh, at, uh, well, my my email address is on uh, the bulwark where you can find me. And by the way, you should also subscribe to the bulwark plus because you get all kinds of other free stuff. I mean, other uh, great uh, uh, offerings, not free, but great offering. This is free and Charlie's (laughs) podcast is free. Uh, But, uh, but if you subscribe to bulwark plus you get, if you become a member, you get uh, the secret podcast with Sarah Longwell and JVL, which is fantastic. And a bunch of other things and, including the great uh, uh, pop culture uh, podca- podcast with Sunny Bunch. So anyway, it's um, it's really worth it. And we do these live streams once a week on Thursday nights um, that is just for members. So highly recommended that you join. And then also, as I say, I'm always open to feedback about this podcast. I try to respond to as many of your emails as I possibly can, but I don't always get to all of them. Depends on how my week is going, but I do read them all. So um, thank you all. And uh, we will be back next week as every week. Mm